want you go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. So last week, Dustin spent some time walking us through Pentecost and Peter's sermon. And we saw how 3,000 Hebrews came to Christ after that. Pretty remarkable. As we look at the book of Acts, we actually see that the early church, and I'll be typically referring to um, the group of believers as the early church as we go through the book of Acts, it was a pretty exciting time. You know, thousands and thousands of Jews were converted and added to the body of Christ just within that first few weeks, maybe a couple of months. Um, Imagine what that time must have actually been like. In fact, I was, I'm working about four or five chapters ahead and, um, the introduction for, uh, uh, one of our times coming up, I was looking at, can we know how many people came to Christ? And we know that at a minimum it was probably 10,000 new believers. Um, and it actually creates some conflict within the church, which is rather interesting because you have this mix of this exciting time of people coming to Christ. And we're going to see a passage today that tells us what they committed themselves to. And then we also see some things start to creep into the church, some difficulties. We see the way Satan tried to work to try to destroy the unity that they had and, and stuff. But this was an exciting time. Um, it's almost hard for us to imagine what it must have been like. Today, Luke is going to give us a glimpse into um, some the more private side, or I guess I guess I'll call it the more personal side of that church. We've seen this big event with Pentecost and Peter out there and all the Jews in Jerusalem. Um, but he's going to basically take the microscope today and look into these believers, and we're going to see hopefully ourselves kind of reflected in them as well. He begins by writing that the believers in the early church were continually devoting themselves to four things. And we're going to look at those four things. And what's interesting about this is the four things that the church was kind of known for as a group, if you will, are four things that are beneficial for us even as individuals. And so it's kind of like what's good for us as individual believers is good for the church as a whole. It's sort of reciprocal. The more literal rendering of what he tells us here is that they were continu- or that they were continually or persisting in certain things. They were continuing in things. And the word actually refers to this intense work, this hard work, something that they were devoted to, um, invested in. And so we're going to go ahead and we're going to look at these four things that the church continued in or devoted themselves to and see what we can actually learn from them. Look at uh, chapter 2 starting in verse 42. We're just going to look at the we're going to look at the small pieces. It's a short passage this morning. He starts off by saying they were continually devoting themselves that's that idea of continuing in is another way to render that. They were committed to doing certain things. They were invested in them. They were continually doing them. But notice that he says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Those are our four things. We're going to look at those individually. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 through 21, Paul declared that the church was built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And that Jesus himself served as a cornerstone, but the apostles became sort of the foundation of the church. And so it's no wonder that he might start out by looking at how they responded to the apostles. Jesus actually asked the apostles not just to be his witnesses in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, but he actually tasked them with a very specific 
mission. He told them how to do church, if you will. Turn to Matthew chapter 28. You all know this passage. Matthew chapter 28. It's referred to as the Great Commission, but it was Jesus' instructions on how the apostles were to operate, if you will. How was it that God was going to build his church through Jesus Christ using the apostles? Matthew chapter 28, jumping down to verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, you may have heard before as we've addressed this, that command go isn't really a command. It's a participle. It defines how they're supposed to do it. And so a better way to render this would be as you are going, as you are going, Make disciples. That's the only command in the whole entire verse, is make disciples. And he tells us how they were supposed to make disciples. As they are going, which means they will be out and about, living their lives, as they're doing that, he says they're to do two things. Basically, baptize them, which is to make disciples. It's the way you made disciples. Was somebody who was baptized, it was their way of expressing commitment to Jesus Christ. It meant, I'm committing myself as a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ. He says, so make disciples by baptizing them. That's the symbol used. But then secondly, teaching them to observe all that I command you. Now notice there, the command is to teach them to observe. Teach them to obey. It's not about content. That's an element of it, because they have to know content to be able to obey, right? The emphasis there is on teaching obedience, teaching them to obey what Jesus Christ commanded. Now think about this. Jesus had personally mentored these men for at least three, three and a half years. They lived with him, essentially, traveled with him, saw him minister, he taught them. We, we see in the, in the Gospels many of the things that he discussed with them and talked with them about. They were also there as he preached to the crowds. After his resurrection, he spent another 40 days, we're told, appearing to them and specifically teaching them about the kingdom, which means he likely was teaching them about things to come, how the plan of God would kind of work out. And so you have this three and a half years of of mentorship. You have this time of 40 days of intense teaching and training after the resurrection. And then after his ascension, he sent the Holy Spirit, and we're told in Ephesians 3, 5, that... He sent the Holy Spirit partly to reveal additional truth, and that would be done primarily through the apostles with a few other individuals. You know, you have James and some others writing the scriptures. You have Jude. And so what we basically have is the Lord working primarily through the apostles and through those early church leaders to build his church. But as part of that, the main goal was that they would teach the church, not just the content of the scriptures or good theology, good doctrine, what God says to be true, but also that they might teach them to obey or teach them to observe. And that's critical, I think, here. When Luke here says in Acts chapter uh, chapter 2, verse 42, that they were continually devoting themselves first to the apostles' teaching, it doesn't just mean that they were in agreement on what they believed. The implication here to continue in the apostles' teaching meant that they were living in obedience to it. 
They were following it. They were doing exactly what Jesus instructed the apostles to do. To continue in something means more than just simply believing it intellectually. It means you live by it. And they were committed to doing what the apostles taught them. And we'll see that you know, in chapter 6 too where there's uh, some issues going on in the church with the, the widows not being taken care of properly from one group to another. And, and so they go to the apostles and the apostles basically instruct them what to do. They say, look, pick seven men from among yourself. Here's the qualifications. Bring them to us. We'll appoint them to do it. And the church does just that. And so the, the apostles in this early church served as examples. They served as teachers. But the expectation was that they would put those things into practice and obey them, not because of the authority of the apostles, but because of the authority of Jesus Christ. They were his witnesses and his representatives. Notice that verse 46, if you just kind of jump through the passage, jump ahead here, it says, day by day they were continuing with one mind in the temple. That's the heart of this. That idea of being unified in their mind was primarily because they were all focused and centered around the doctrines and the theology and that that was taught by the apostles, but that they continued in it. They practiced it. And when they practiced it, when they behaved in accordance to what they were being taught, it built, built unity. And he says here that they were committed to that from day to day, continuing in one mind of the temple. The emphasis there on the temple is important. It probably refers to the outer court area, which is where the teaching took place. And so they were going to the temple every day to be fed, to be taught by the apostles. Now we'll learn in additional passages here that that's where the miracles and the signs and the wonders and the healings were also taking place as well. So much so that people were coming and couldn't even fit in those temple courts, which were huge, by the way, and were lining the streets. And so there's a lot going on, but a good chunk of the time the apostles were teaching and feeding, probably from the Old Testament, and then new revelation given to them so that they might be able to then continue in those teachings of Jesus Christ because, again, it was about obedience to the teachings of Christ, not just filling people's head, heads with knowledge. And so because of that, they were of one mind. Um, verse 43 says, And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place to the apostles. That might have partly been why they were so committed to the apostles. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine that if, if um, all of our pastors and teachers today were doing signs and wonders, how that might make you look at them? That's not God's purpose and plan today, but at least with the apostles, God used them and filled them in a way that they would do signs and wonders. That, I think, revealed the authority that they had. You know, we're going to see this a little bit later, too, where the signs and wonders in the New Testament that we see were primarily done to authenticate the witnesses and the message that those witnesses shared. did the same thing with Christ. That's why he healed. It was to authenticate. He is who he claims to be. You better listen to him. And so what we have within that early church is this excitement surrounding the apostles and what they were teaching and their leadership. But it wasn't so much because of them, but because of what Christ was doing through them. In other words, he was going to build his church on the foundation of those apostles, and that early church committed themselves to that. Now, what do we, what do, we do with that in our day? We don't have apostles here today. But God has established within the church um, that there are teachers and others that are supposed to um, teach not just content, but obedience. 
You know, when I stand up here, when Dustin stands up here, um, we're not demanding obedience of you, but our hope is that we're not just filling you with head knowledge. Our hope is that you'll take that and go, wow, I love Christ. I want to do what we learned today. That's healthy and beneficial for us. It's that way when we study the scriptures ourselves, is it not? You know, it doesn't do us any good to just fill our heads with head knowledge and then walk away. It should, it should change us. And the way that it changes us is when we commit ourselves in obedience to it. And so that's really what you find here. It's not that they were putting the apostles up on this pedestal and saying, oh, we'll obey the apostles and they should have all this power and authority over us. No, it was rather they were serving as examples and teaching them about Christ. But they were also teaching them how to obey. And we even see that reflected in what we know of Peter and Paul and James and Jude and others, where they lived out what they taught. And so we see that in this early church, is that they were continued to learning, being in the Word, being taught and being fed. Because again, Luke tells us here, they did this every day they went to the temple to be taught, to be fed. But they continued in what they learned, which means they put it into practice. Man, that would be an awesome thing if our churches today looked that way. But the reality of it is the American church struggles in that regard. Um, Oftentimes what we see within the American church is a facade of holiness and righteousness and commitment. And part of that is because we're ignorant. You know, when Barna, the the latest research I had seen from from Barna, um, indicates that the average American Christian who goes to what I'm going to refer to as an evangelical church, meaning churches that should be preaching the scriptures in, in that, if given a 10-question quiz on some of the very simplistic core doctrines in the New Testament, average 20%. They only get two out of 10 questions correct on basic, simple doctrines in the scriptures. If they don't know it, how can they live it? They don't know it. How can they live it? And so we struggle here. Now, I hope that doesn't sound too harsh, but that's the reality of Christianity in the United States. We look less and less and less like Christ. And because of that, the church isn't nearly as impactful as it used to be. In fact, I had um, shared with Dustin, and this will come up in in a future message here, Um, Max Lucado just recently um, has apologized for a sermon he did back in 2004 where he spoke about um, biblical marriage and and some other issues relating to the LGBT movement and whatnot. I've gone back and I've looked at that sermon. There wasn't anything unbiblical in it. There wasn't even anything um, mean-spirited about it, but he's come out and he's apologized. He was recently asked to speak at the cathedral in Washington, which is a gay-affirming church. And because of him going there to speak, um, he spoke on the Holy Spirit, nothing related to the issue. Um, But because of that, many people were offended, thought he shouldn't have been invited. So after the fact, he sent a letter to the cathedral, I've read the letter, where he apologizes for all the hurtful things he said back in 2004. But in addition to that, what he did in the letter was he basically said, I stand in agreement with the cathedral. Aligned himself with them, but then he also said in that same letter that faithful Christians can disagree about what the Bible says about that issue. 
faithful Christians do not disagree about what the scriptures say on such a clear issue. Well, just recently, Bethany Christian um, Adoption Services, Dave, I think that's who you guys might have used, has come out and done something very similar. Just this last week, made an announcement about nationally they will now place children into um, gay-affirming homes, same-sex couples and homes. It's something they did in Michigan two years ago because of some legal suits and other things. I know they're struggling. I know that they're trying to still do what they believe is the right thing to do for children who need homes. What disturbed me was because of the statement where they basically said the same thing Max Lucado did in their release. That, oh, we can just agree to disagree on this particular issue. Had they come out and said, you know what, we're struggling legally here. We've got to make some decisions. We have to make a decision. Do we still you know, do the best we can in an environment we live in? But they took it a step further to say, well, you know what, there are great gay families out there that are God-honoring, etc. There's a compromise there. Now, again, I don't want to sound too mean-spirited in calling these out, but it's, it's something we face today in our nation where um, we don't know the truth sometimes because it's not being taught very adequately, but even when we do, sometimes we compromise that. We're no longer living in obedience to it. And we should. The early church was committed to continuing in the teachings of the apostles, and the apostles this, this time represented sound biblical teaching and understanding. Now again, I, I'm not going to translate that into you guys have to obey me. That's not at all what we're suggesting here. My job and Dustin's job and, and other pastors and teachers, that your job is to teach you what the Word says and show you how to obey, show you how to apply that to your lives. And hopefully they represent that and do that themselves without compromise. And that's what we see in the early church. That's one reason we saw thousands coming to Christ, because they were devoted to continuing in those things that they had been taught, doing exactly what Jesus said, being disciples who were in obedience. Let's go on to the second thing. Notice also in verse 42 it says this, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, but also, it says, to fellowship. Now, when we refer to fellowship, we generally use it as a synonym for hanging out together. Let's go fellowship together. Now, that's okay. Um, that's certainly one aspect of fellowship. But the biblical meaning of fellowship is actually a little different, and it goes much deeper than that. More precisely, it literally means to share something in common. That's what fellowship means. It's actually how the word is used in the New Testament. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16 says this, And do not neglect doing good and sharing. That's actually the word for fellowship. But the author, most English translations translate that verse as sharing because the context suggests that's what it's about. But the Greek word there is the same word used for fellowship. Romans chapter 15, verse 26, Paul wrote this, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Guess what? That word contribution is the same word for fellowship. Other places in the scriptures, like the book of Philippians, um, Paul uses it to describe participating together in things like the gospel. So the word is translated as participating. Um, Actually, in Philippians chapter 3, The word fellowship is used as it talks about suffering for Christ. Sharing in the sufferings of Christ is fellowship with Christ. And so really at the heart and soul of this word for fellowship is this idea not just of hanging out together, 
but sharing life together. We have this very unique thing called fellowship in the church because we share certain things in common. We share the sufferings of Christ. We share the salvation of Christ. But we also share the burdens that we have with one another. And so fellowship goes beyond just hanging out together. It has to do with, with sharing our lives with one another in a very unique way. And so it says here that they were committed to fellowship. They were continually participating in fellowship. So he didn't simply mean when he writes here that they were continually devoted to fellowship or continuing in fellowship. He didn't mean they simply hung out together, but rather that they sacrificially, sacrificially shared and invested their lives together. Look at verses 44 through 45. It gives us a good description of that. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all and, or as everyone might have need. So notice he says, all who believe were together. That's obviously the idea of coming together. The tense he uses there implies they did this on a regular, continual basis. They were always together with each other. Reminds me of when I was in college. I was talking to my daughter Kimberly about, about college. You know, she's living at home right now. Um, she goes to Columbus State in, in Delaware Area um, Career Center. So she's not, and, and I don't think she'll mind if I share this, she's not experiencing that college experience that my wife experienced at Taylor as a Christian university or even me at a secular university. I remember really fondly my college experience. Part of it is because I got saved my freshman year. But for the majority of my college time, I had a family of believers right there. Um, I play. I learned to play guitar, and so um, I would go down into, we lived in a place called Towers, which is a 10-story, um, two-wing um, dormitory. So there were about 65 guys on one side and 65 girls on the other side, you know. And there were these big meeting rooms downstairs. And on Friday nights, um, not all the time, but maybe once, twice a month, I would just announce, hey, me and Steve Schmeckel and a couple other guys are getting together to sing, and we would go downstairs and we'd bring our guitars with us, and we'd have sometimes 60, 70, 80 people that would show up. And we would spend three hours just singing together, we'd even pray together, all just spontaneous. Um, between classes, you know, I'd, I'd leave the dormitories in the morning, go down, and um, we used to have our meetings for our Campus Crusade, our Campus Crusade meetings, we'd have them on Tuesday nights in these rooms in the student center. And these were auditoriums, basically like movie theaters. They would seat two, three, four hundred people. And um, what was really interesting is we owned that floor outside those rooms during the week. Because we would go down to class, and between classes, that's where all the Christians congregated. So between every class, that's where I would head. You know, I had an hour to spare between this class and that class. We'd go to the student center, and I always knew I would find other believers up outside of those rooms. That was the area where we hung out together. And sometimes we'd nap out there, you know, because we were so tired. But most of the time it was just hanging out, chatting, and talking. Um, that's where we would share and pray. And, if, you know, sometimes you'd go up there and you might find somebody sitting by themselves and they're all stressed out and you can tell. And so you go sit down next to them. That, man, that was, I loved that time. It was, it was like church. I had a church I went to. It was on Sunday mornings, but it was about the only time I saw those folks. But my family, the people I hung out with, were the dorms on Saturday and Friday nights or, or up in that area outside those uh, meeting rooms every day of the week. 
Um, seeing those people every single day sustained me through college, especially since I went to a secular university that hated Christians. I mean, I would get phone calls sometimes at night when I was an RA because they knew I was involved with the crusade and people would yell and cuss and scream at me on the telephone and call me all kinds of names just because they knew I went to crusade meetings. You know, and so that was my lifeblood, hanging out with these people. But it was more than that. We shared, we spent time together, we would eat together, we would sing together, we'd pray together. That's kind of the picture that Paul gives us here. They all believe, or all who believed were together. It says they held everything in common in verse 45. We see the same thing in Acts chapter 4, if you want to jump over there real quick, and we'll spend some time on this in a couple of weeks, but Acts chapter 4, verse 32, we get the same picture. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all of them were owners of land and houses. They would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales, do you notice there that the way that Luke describes the fellowship here is the fact that they shared together. Nobody considered anything they had as purely their own. They were selling possessions and giving to need. It says that nobody had any need. That's fellowship. Sharing. It isn't just hanging out together. In fact, in some respects, James condemns such behavior of just hanging out together because he said if you see somebody in need and you don't meet their need, your religion is fake. It's useless. You see, fellowship demands that we not just spend time together, that we invest ourselves sacrificially in each other's lives, that we help when there's need. Sometimes that's financial. Sometimes that's in other ways. Um, Sometimes that's just seeing a need and trying to fill it with a skill you might have. Or maybe it's just an emotional need where you sit down with somebody and you pray for them and you ask them how they're doing. or you. It's the concept, again, of sharing. And so this early church, church... was continually fellowshipping with one another, continually paying attention to meeting one another's needs and sharing with one another. Now, I know you're all probably thinking there, do you have to go home and sell everything you own and should we start living communally as a church? You know, set up some cots over here. You know, it's interesting. Jesus in Luke chapter 12 did tell the rich man to sell all his possessions, give it all to the poor and come follow him. Dustin, is that prescriptive or descriptive? That man obviously had a problem. His possessions were more important to him than Christ, which is why Christ challenged him that way. He knew the problem this man had. He knew the answer beforehand. And so the very thing that kept that man coming from Christ, his possessions, Jesus said, give him up. Because in your case, you have to give him up to follow me because you can't get past that. It was not a command given to every believer that we have to sell everything. The Bible never condemns owning possessions. And in fact, God actually blesses blesses people through earthly possessions. In fact, the places that the early church usually met, once they got sort of kicked out of the temple and they started having to, to go into these smaller home churches, if you will, they met in people's homes. And some of these homes were fairly large. We know from archaeological evidence that some of them had these big porticos or these open areas that would you could easily seat 100 people. They obviously didn't sell those, otherwise they wouldn't have a place to meet. Throughout the Old Testament, and even in some places in the New Testament, we are told that at times God blesses us financially. And so the Bible doesn't condemn it. In fact, we'll get at this a couple of weeks. When Ananias and Sapphira sold some of their belongings, 
and then came to the church and basically lied and, and said, we sold it for X amount, we're giving it all to you. And then it was discovered that, no, they sold it for X amount, they kept a bunch of it back for themselves, and they were really using it to make themselves look good. Peter basically said, what are you, idiots? This was yours to do whatever you wanted with it. You didn't have to sell it. Nothing said you had to sell it. And even when you sold it, you could have done whatever you wanted with the proceeds. You could have come and said, here, here's 10%. God would have been pleased. But you didn't do that. You lied to the Holy Spirit. You're using this for your own personal gain. So even that, Peter makes it clear, there's no expectation and obligation that you sell everything you own and that we all live communally. In fact, the scriptures simply teach that we're supposed to pay attention to one another's needs and if we have to, try to meet them sacrificially. And so that's really the picture you get here. The picture is not one of communal living necessarily. It's that they were selling property to meet need where they saw it. It doesn't mean that they devastated themselves. In fact, elsewhere, Paul actually mentions that... Um, in fact, turn to Acts chapter 4, verse... Well, we already touched on that. We'll leave that as it is. Um, there's another place where Paul basically... And I'm trying to think, it might be the Philippians, where Paul addresses them and says, look, giving sacrificially isn't so that you're hurt and somebody else gains from your hurt. He's very careful about that as he's instructing um, the people of the church to try to meet the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. The saints in Jerusalem were having a really hard time. The persecution was most severe there in Jerusalem, and so many of them were having a hard time. And so Paul asked the churches to collect some funds, and then Paul was going to take them to Jerusalem to meet the needs of the Jews that were in Jerusalem. But as part of that discussion, he cautions them and he says, I'm not doing this asking you to give to your hurt so that you can be hurt so that they can be in prosperity. And so he's, he's really cautioning them against this idea of just give it all up and live in a commune and suffer in life so that others can benefit from your hurt. And so that's a good rule of thumb for us is that I'm not asking anybody here to sell what you own. What I'm saying is Fellowship means that we pay attention to what's going on and meet needs as we can. It's one of the reasons why, you know, at a church here, we've talked about this before. A lot of you, you know, a lot of your giving, um, you know, pays the bills, keeps the lights on. Um, you actually bless me with a, with a small housing allowance, which means I don't have to, I don't work outside of my normal job very much to try to help make ends meet. So what you guys do is you bless me with a, with a housing allowance something um, to kind of bless me as I spend time um, preparing every week and, the, and, and whatnot. But we also take some of what you give, then we put that aside into a, into a savings account for the church here that we're committed to using for your benefit as you might need it. You know, um, We helped the, the Malins with their adoption. You know, We, um, we have uh, so the Dietrichs um, with some missionary activity and... Um, we're committed to using those funds to help and to bless the church where there's need. You know, Supriya Mitchell, Steve Mitchell's wife, when Steve died, we gave a fairly significant contribution to her to help her out, the body of Christ. That's what that money's supposed to be used for. You guys sacrificially give, and then we use that as need be. And we've said this before. If anybody in the church here finds themselves in a spot where they are genuinely struggling financially, we're here to help. That's why that money is there. So that's fellowship. This idea of continuing and sharing with one another. And the early church was committed to that. 
It's something they continually did on a regular basis. Let's go on to the third one. The third thing that um, Luke actually says here, verse 42, again, is that they were continually devoting themselves to the breaking of bread. Now that's actually one aspect of fellowship is this idea of holding meals together. Now outside of the Lord's Supper in the Gospels, there's mainly four references to the idea of breaking bread. One of them occurs in 1 Corinthians 10, and that's where Paul uses a phrase to refer to celebrating the Lord's Supper. So sometimes this idea of breaking bread can mean simply the bread and the cup that we see Christ practice in John chapter 13. However, the other three simply refer to eating together. Breaking bread was a euphemism for basically eating. That's chapter 2 of Acts, chapter 20, and then Luke 24. So based on the context that we're looking at here in Luke, he's likely simply referring to the fact that they were eating together. They shared a lot of their meals together. Luke even says in verse 46, and following that, it's something they did every day. Look at verse 46 again. Day by day, they were continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their numbers day by day. And so Luke mentions that these people were eating together every day. Now, Luke actually refers to this as the daily serving of food. We know in the rest of the scriptures that they actually gave it a a name. Um, Jude refers to it as a love feast. Kind of an interesting term to um, use for eating together. But part of the reason for that is because there was a couple of purposes for it. They weren't just, you know, hanging out to eat. They actually had other ministries sort of built into this time of, of eating. One of them we find elsewhere in the book of Acts chapter 6. That was the time when widows were provided with food. In fact, it becomes an issue in in Acts chapter 6 because during that daily serving of food, some widows were being ignored over other widows. And so it had to be addressed by the apostles and by people within the church. Um, Just the fact that they refer to it as a um, love feast indicates that part of the reason they did it was a form of love towards one another. In uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul kind of chastises the Corinthians because they were abusing that time. Because it had become in the Corinthian church just a time where they all came and gorged themselves together. And as a result, there were some in the church that weren't being fed. The less needy. I mean, the more needy. Um, so this time of sharing their meals together wasn't just about hanging out to chow down on your favorite foods. It was a way they ministered to one another. It was one of the ways they made sure that people had their needs met. And we kind of have something similar here in the sense that maybe we don't eat together all the time, but when somebody has a, an issue, they have a baby born, or somebody comes down and they're in the hospital, what does the church oftentimes do with something like that? Provide meals. Why do we do that? To help meet needs. We know that if mom has just had a baby, that it helps to provide food so that she doesn't have to get on her feet and prepare, or dad doesn't have to do that. It's one of the ways to bless the family, but we do that to be a blessing. It's one of the ways that we love one another. And so the early church was committed to doing that. Now, again, they did it every day. We don't know how long they actually did it every day. Um, By the time we get to Acts chapter 20, we find out that they were at least doing it once a week. And that typically was on Sundays. And they often combined it with a time of the Lord's Supper. Um, 
Acts chapter 6 seems to suggest they were doing it daily at that point, so it probably varied from area to area. But the emphasis here is on the simple fact that they liked to share their their meals together with one another. Um, The other thing we notice is if you look at verse 47 of chapter 2, it appears they did something else during this time as well. It says that they were praising God. We know that elsewhere we're also told that they use the time to study the word of God and to pray together. So this time of sharing meals together wasn't just about eating food. It was a time to minister to one another, to make sure that, that the widows were fed and the orphans were fed and that others in the church who had needs, that they would have their needs met. One of the advantages of that is nobody has to ask. Think about that. You just get together, make sure people's needs are met. They don't have to ask. They don't have to come to you and say, I'm hungry, I don't have any food. So it provides an opportunity by coming together to share those meals together just to make sure people's needs are met, which is partly why Paul chastises them so so much in 1 Corinthians because many of them had forgotten that. They forgot that there are more needy people here that need the food more than you do. And he tells them, eat before you come. Let those who need it eat. So they were committed to not just the apostles' teaching and living within what they were taught. They weren't just committed to fellowship. They weren't just committed to sharing the meals together and meeting each other's needs that way. But the last thing that Luke mentions here is that they were committed to prayer. You find that again in the end of verse 42. It said that they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. I don't think it's a coincidence here that um, Luke began the book of Acts with the apostles praying gathering together, devoting themselves to that. We were told that in that first chapter, that they were devoted to prayer. That's what they did. That's how they started. We know in some respects that's probably most of what they did, at least in the days between the um, Ascension and Pentecost, because here they are, not living at their homes. They're back living in this, probably a hotel of sorts, if you will, a home with some rooms that says they were living together, and they prayed for nine or ten days probably spent the bulk of their time doing just that. So it's no, I don't, I don't think it's shocking that Luke would start the book that way because of the importance of prayer. In fact, Luke mentions prayer 29 times in this book. That's more than there are chapters. So it's almost, well, it's more than one time per chapter on average that Luke mentions the importance of prayer and how often they were engaging in it. What's interesting is that that's echoed in the New Testament as a whole. There are only five New Testament books that don't mention prayer. So 21 out of the 26 books, or 20, uh, 22 out of the 27 books, all mention prayer. It's important. And we find here that they were committed to it. Now, I'm going to rehearse or review what we talked about in chapter 1. When the, um, the apostles themselves were devoted to prayer, I gave you, I think it was seven, what was it, uh, eight, seven different things, or seven reasons why prayer was so important. I'm just going to rehearse those or review them for you again to remind us. One of the things that prayer does is it helps us align our will with the Lord's will. Because as you pray, if we pray like Jesus, your will be done. Not mine, but yours. And so when we pray, what we're really doing is we're seeking God's will. You know, um, we might pray for healing, we might pray for, for help with this or help with that, but ultimately what we're praying for is that the Lord's will would be done in those things. So we might, when we pray for somebody to be healed... Oftentimes you hear us say, if it's, your, if, it's, if it's your will. And you might also hear us when we pray for somebody to be healed, that if you choose, Lord, not to heal them, that you give them grace and mercy to be able to, to live through it and to work through it. Or we might 
ask for peace through that time because what, what it really does, it helps to align our will with the Lord's will. It also reminds us of our dependence on Him. Jesus, when He was telling His disciples to pray, said, Give us this day our daily bread. Do you think they really had to ask Jesus or the Lord to give them the food they need? We're told that the Lord will give us what we need. We're told that He does it for the birds, for the fields. They don't have to work and store up things. So why do we pray and say, Lord, take care of my needs? Because it simply reminds us of His provision. It tells us where it's coming from. You know, It's good for us to remind ourselves of the Lord's provision. And so prayer does that. When we pray for our church here, it's always about, Lord, just what you want. It's your provision. You take care of us. And so we pray to remind us of that. It helps us not lose heart. Notice that when Jesus said in Luke chapter 18, he told them to pray, and he shared a parable with them, and told them to pray so that they don't lose heart. Think about what prayer does to encourage us. You know, as we pray, it helps to settle our heart, helps to encourage us, reminds us that God is still in control, reminds us of his sovereignty. Helps us deal with temptation. Luke 22, he told his disciples, pray that you may not enter temptation. Temptation comes in all kinds of forms, does it not? Um, I had shared a story a while back of struggling through with a new boss and some other things and feeling like there's tension and not being trusted and some other things. And uh, I spent nights praying that I behave properly because everything in my being wanted to say, I don't deserve that. I don't deserve to be mistreated or not trusted. I've been doing this job twice as long. And nightly I would pray, Lord, my response ought to be to serve not him, but you. And I should do it in a way that honors you and serves as a witness to him. Because the temptation was, if I'm not appreciated, I'm not going to, I'll cut back to work in just eight hours a day. I'm not going to work the 10 hours a day anymore. I'm only going to do exactly what I'm getting paid. In fact, my day is seven and a half hours because my contract says I only have to work from 8.30 to 5. And I get a lunch break of an hour. But I don't take lunch breaks usually. I don't knock off at 5 o'clock every day. Why? I'm tempted because I wasn't being treated right. So I prayed because of the temptation. So it helps us with that. Also helps us deal with our enemies. Jesus said, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Oh, and get this, pray for those who mistreat you. So another thing that prayer does is it helps us deal with those who mistreat us. Do you think that might have been important for the early church? Think about this. They are exploding in growth and there's a certain group of people that just really don't like it. They're really not happy about it. And it happens to be all the religious leaders that had taught them and fed them for years. Think about that. These were all Jews at this point. The very people that they had gone to the temple to see that were opening up the scriptures, that were telling them about God, now they hate them and they're going to start to prosecute and persecute the disciples. And the persecution through the book of Acts gets stronger and stronger from these leaders. They get more and more offended. Do you think... They would need to pray for those individuals. I'm convinced, Luke makes a statement in a passage coming up, that many of the priests were getting saved. I think it's because they probably prayed for him. I can't guarantee that, 
But the fact that they're continually devoted to the prayer, I would assume that they knew how to pray, and they probably prayed in accordance with Jesus because the apostles were supposed to teach them what Jesus taught them. And when they asked Jesus, how should we pray? I'm sure they probably taught them how to pray like Jesus prayed, which included praying for their enemies. Maybe even Jesus on the cross looking down and saying, Lord, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. That's a prayer for his enemies. So it helps us deal with our enemies. Um, According to Ephesians chapter 6, it keeps us alert. I wonder sometimes if the reason the church doesn't see stuff coming at them is because we don't pray to stay alert. We are under attack now in the United States more than we've ever been. Our ideals, our values. Just this morning, I read an article on a new bill. We've all heard about the religious freedom stuff that's kind of going on right now with the LGBT stuff, where... That's kind of being rammed through, and it's going to likely impact nonprofit organizations and Christian businesses being forced to abide by some of the same laws regarding discrimination against sexual identities and stuff. Um, what that simply means is that if a, if a um, photographer doesn't want to take a picture at a gay wedding, he may very well be either forced to or could lose the business. We see that in some areas now where that's playing out. Well, this will be on a federal level, so that's one side. But have you heard about the Do Not Harm Act? That is specifically targeted at Christians and churches because it's trying to undo the Religious Freedom Act which, which basically codified the right for religious organizations to have religious exemptions for things that violate our conscience as Christians. And I think that was passed in, I think back in the 80s, if I remember right. So now this Do No Harm Act is a direct reversal of that. That's the way it's phrased, that's the way it's talked about, and that's the goal and so um, the article I read this morning was by a group that's really pushing hard on that that basically said, it's time we take away these rights from these Christians and stop them from doing harm to us. And so it's one of the things Congress is working on right now. It's called the Do Not Harm Act. It's specifically targeted at us to say you should not be able to live out your religious convictions if it harms me. Meaning, I want you to marry me or I want you to bake me a cake Or, I want to work at your church. And you darn well better hire me, even though I don't agree with your statement of faith, even though I don't agree with your practices. You still have to hire me. You have no right to discriminate against me. So what are we told? Keep alert. I think the church doesn't see some of these things coming at us. We don't... And we've talked about this a little bit here, about some of the false teaching and how it creeps into the church. We're not paying attention. How did that get into our church? Nobody's paying attention. We're not on alert. We need to pray to be on alert. And so this is what prayer does for us. The other thing prayer does for us is it helps overcome weariness. Helps overcome weariness, whether it's just physical things in life, whether it's mental, emotional things in life, whether it's things we do as a church. We get weary sometimes and prayer helps. So these are all the reasons that prayer is important. And we're told that the early church was devoted to prayer. One of the reasons why we take time at the end of our service here is I want us to remember that we need to pray as a body. Sometimes we have more requests than others. Sometimes the prayer requests are serious. Sometimes they're, they're maybe less so, but they're all important. God just wants us to pray. Whatever's on our heart, to pray. 
Let me kind of wrap this up. If we look at verse 47, what we see in verse 47 is a culmination of these things. It's the result of these things. They were committed to following the teachings of the apostles. They were committed to fellowshipping. They were committed to actually meeting on a regular basis and sharing their food together and meeting one another's needs. They were committed to praying for one another. And the result of that, we're told, is that they had favor with all the people and that the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Those are the two results, the consequences of these four practices that they were committed to. The first one we see there is that they were held in high regard. We're told that twice, actually two more times in the book of Acts. That the world looked at the church with favor, even though many hated them like the religious leaders, as a whole the population looked at them with favor, we're told. There was something envious about the church. Now Jesus told us we'd be hated because they hated him, but we also are told here three times in the book of Acts that the world still looked at them with favor. It's like this love-hate relationship. You know, my brother was that way where he emailed, or wrote me a letter one time, it was before email, and he basically told me that I had no right to share with him or talk religiously with him anymore. I never made it an issue to push it on him, but I would be open and honest. Well, he didn't want to hear anymore, so he wrote me a letter, basically told me to back off. It wasn't too much longer where he wrote me another letter after he got saved and said the very thing I was rejecting is the very thing I needed. There was something in that love-hate relationship. And so we see that here where they were held in high regard. I'm convinced that if the church were more like the church really should be, if we looked like this early church, and the world could see these are the things they're committed to, we might be held in higher regard. I think one of the reasons why we're not held in such high regard anymore is because we don't look like that. The average church just looks like the world around us. We've tried to become like the world around us, thinking we would attract them to us. Now they're not attracted to us. Because we look just like them. The only difference is we have a religious label. And so, this is one of the cons- or one of the results, was they were held in high regard. Lastly, it says God added to their numbers. We're told that one, two, three, four, five, six, at least seven times in the book of Acts that the Lord continued to add to their numbers. Why? Because they were a healthy church. People were attracted to them. We're told in places that multitudes of men and women were being added to them daily. There was something attractive that drew people to the church and so they began to grow. That's exactly what we would expect in the early church. It was filled with new converts. They were excited. They were growing in their newfound faith. Um, they were probably exuding, literally exuding, seeping gifts of the Spirit, fruits of the Spirit, like love, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. The world saw that. You ever notice how infectious new faith in Christ is? It's kind of a shame that as a church body, we've kind of lost that in many respects. You know what's interesting is when Jesus addresses the churches in the book of Revelation, the very first few chapters, it's interesting because he praises them for things like um, their hard work, he praises them for their perseverance, he praises them for their intolerance of evil men and false prophets, but you know the main thing he chastises the seven churches in the book of Revelation for? He actually chastises five, uh, five out of the seven with this really losing their first love, their passion for him. 
They worked hard. They believed in good teaching. You know, they were doing the work. But they lost their passion and their love, that first love, it's called, for him. I fear many Christians maybe today as a church as a whole have lost that first love, that passion. Maybe that's why the American church is shrinking at a much rapid rate today than it was just 10 years ago. We're not growing anymore. We're shrinking, the American church. Other parts of the world, it's growing, but here we're kind of shrinking. Well, I think part of it is we're not devoted to these four things. We've lost that first love as well. It all kind of goes together. I mentioned to you as we started this that the four things that we would see here that are good for the church, that made the early church so successful or... um, develop that reputation among the world around them, those four things that are good for the church are really good for us. In fact, they have to start with us, don't they? As individuals, we should be devoted to obedience. We should be anxious to learn and to be fed and then to live that out, be continually living out the teachings that have been handed down to us through this. We should also be committed to fellowship. As an individual, I can't survive without it. You know, when we're on an island by ourselves, we're unhealthy. So as individuals, we have to be committed to fellowship. Not just being fellowshipped by others, but fellowshipping others. In other words, sharing with others and allowing others to share with us. We should be committed to hanging out and spending our meals together. That's called hospitality in the scripture, something we're called to and commanded to do. We kind of do that here as a church family, don't we? With the, we don't do as much with the COVID thing, but the second Friday, second Saturday things where we make a point every month, getting together just to bring some food together, hang out together. That's important for us. But then lastly, we see here that prayer. That's good for us as individuals. If we're not praying as individuals, if you are not praying over the course of the week, then you're no good to the body of Christ either because the body needs individuals to pray because that's how we pray as a body. So again, as these things are important for the body, it's really more about us in terms individually in our own lives with Christ because when individuals are healthy, when we're committed to these things as individuals, then the church as a whole is.